I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. And this week on the show, we have Surgeon. Now, I've been listening to Anthony Child's music for basically a quarter of a century at this point. One of the first 12s I ever bought was his Mugger Scum Out release on Soma Records uh, back in 1996. So, um, yeah, this is a slightly surreal episode to be doing for me. Um, certainly 16-year-old me would have found it quite weird looking this far into the future and uh, being confronted with the idea of recording a podcast with the guy who's banging techno tracks I just bought. But um, yeah, he's someone who I've been sort of consistently impressed by, I guess, over the years. He's managed to stay kind of ahead of the game, I suppose, is a way of putting it. As we talk about in the conversation, he was really into the early grime and dubstep stuff that we've discussed on the show before. And as I also mentioned, I was playing his tracks in my kind of dubstep slash techno sets in the late 2000s. And in the last 10 years, he's done some really interesting stuff with more, I guess, ambient, type music with his albums as Anthony Child and also Transcendence Orchestra. He's also done many other collaborative projects including uh, British Murder Boys with Regis possibly most notably but also he's performed with uh, Blauan and another people too and yeah he's just always been someone who I've kind of viewed as being extremely cutting edge I suppose for want of a better phrase in his general output. So it's great to have him on the show. We had a really interesting conversation covering a lot of different things from 
taking acid at raves in Birmingham, all the way through to playing at Labyrinth Festival in Japan in 2019. I haven't talked too much about Labyrinth Festival on this podcast to date, but it's something that has been influential on me over the years. So um, yeah, you're going to enjoy this episode, I think. Before we get into it, just a quick reminder to leave us a review or a rating. You can uh, do that wherever you're listening to this podcast and it really does help the show. So please do that. Get us in the Discord. There is a link in the show notes to that or get me on Twitter at Scuba Official. Instagram is also at Scuba Official. And finally, there is a Spotify playlist with all the music or much of the music that gets discussed on the show. So that's a good way to follow us too on that particular platform. So without further delay, here is Surgeon. Surgeon, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, how how are you doing? Where where are you at the moment? I'm in Spain. I'm in Mallorca. I just got back from a fairly grueling couple of weeks in the states playing playing shows. My first shows for ages, ah. so I'm, I'm actually seriously jet lagged, and there's a real danger that I may fall asleep in, in the middle of this. So yeah. apologies if I do. I've- I've I've pumped myself full of coffee, which is usually the best way of <laughs> right. Anyway, um, I had a question to kick off with, uh-huh. which probably won't be too relevant to anything else we talk about. But I wanted to ask you if the term business techno meant anything to you, or whether it was just um, some kind of extension of musical snobbery on behalf of certain people. But does it does it does it resonate at all with you, or what, what does it mean? Business techno, I uh yeah that's a difficult one i don't um, i mean i've i've heard i've heard of the term did did was it did you invent it or something was that is that i I didn't no no i can't i I can't take credit um shifted i think uh invented it coined Ah, it initially for some reason i thought i thought i thought you did oh that's well i've i've been drawn into the debate on it as i tend to do sometimes but uh, yeah you know it's um it's funny. I I guess I guess a way of kind of summing it up, really. I th- I think the whole, well, yeah, the whole time I've been involved with with dance music, there's always been there's always been music I don't like, and there's music I do like, and I I kind of always try and just focus my energy on on what I do like rather than wasting wasting uh, yeah wasting time getting upset about what I don't like. And I, I try to kind of check myself and, re- and remind myself to do that. So that is my, you know, when you, if you if you talk about business techno, and I, I guess, I don't know, is that a term used by people about some music that they don't like, <laughs> shall we say? So I mean, it's probably a fair assessment of it. Yeah, yeah, so for me, it's like, I kind of don't, I don't get drawn into something where it's like, oh, check this out, check out how horrible this is, or <laughs> how much I hate this. You know, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. You know, um, or or just get too drawn into it. So that's my, that's my hippie answer to that. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the healthy answer. I think it would be better if more people took that view. Yeah, it is. It is about trying to trying to be healthy, and it's just I. I don't know. I, I always have this sense that I only have a certain amount of energy to devote to things, and I want to. I want to focus that on what 
what I like and what I want to play and support and enjoy and not not on what I hate, basically. So, I mean, a, like a, a question which might relate to this then, which I, did, which I didn't have written down, but just occurred to me, would, was um, what would be... Like, how much do you engage with social media on a kind of day-to-day level? Because a lot of this kind of negativity tends to play out on social media. I do. I do. I use social media, but um, maybe maybe it's just about which accounts I follow or look at or something. I, I, yeah, I seem to be quite lucky in not encountering stuff. And I, you know, it's like, for example, someone will mention techno twitter kicking off and i'll be like i have no i have no idea but i i'm but again i'm not i'm not drawn into like looking for what it's kicking off about do you know what i mean sure i mean that that sounds like a daily mail headline there doesn't it really yeah yeah that that is that is the techno daily mail headline techno twitter is kicking off (laughs) but um yeah i yeah i really i really i i really try to be conscious to not get drawn into to the social media car crash but you know i like what what i really like it for is when people i follow talk about music that they like and i check it out and go oh wow i'd never heard of that artist and this is amazing you know that that's the most positive thing for me about social media and just you know letting people know about releases and gigs and stuff like that really and i try i i try i try my best to keep it like that and not get uh it's yeah it's just not it's not a great platform for 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 debate really it's yeah it's more about shouting probably so yeah i don't i try to not get into that yeah particularly twitter so i mean anything where you're kind of constrained in how much you can say it does kind of like incentivize people to say that thing whatever they have to say dispense uh, sort of distilled down and then as loudly as possible yeah it's also, you know, I, 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 I have this, uh, I have this idea about the way that, you know, you know, the way that that humans experience the world through their senses, and their senses kind of filter and alter things. So we, what we experience as the world is, is. Uh, a version of it, shall we say? It's through it's through these filters. So it, we're not experiencing the r- real world. But when you talk about social media, this is like a really heavy filter. So what you're experiencing, someone's opinion or or whatever, is it's so so filtered. But people act as if that's like the truth somehow, and they jump. And it's so easy to kind of jump to conclusions and just not even hear people out so you know i just it's it's so far from reality it's it's a joke really so i kind of treat it like that i try i try to remind myself of that again that's yeah a healthy perspective on it for sure so um okay well i want to get bogged down in this at all i had another just random question Uh not relating to anything i like these i like these random questions yeah i know i didn't i didn't necessarily plan to do it like this but um i just had two written down for the start so this one's completely different but um relates to um uh watching your set at labyrinth a couple of years ago i think it was the last i think it might have been it was 2019 i think 
Mm-hmm. Um, you played and Steve Bicknell played. Was it 2019? Am I am I getting that right? It's a bit jumbled. Yeah, yeah. The last one. <laughs> That's the last time I saw I saw you in person, actually. Yeah, I, actually, I think it was 2019. But anyway, regardless. So basically, I was watching your set and I think I'm fairly sure you played uh, and then Steve played after you and there was a really really big difference between the two sets in the way that like the low end was was kind of manifesting itself and the following day i went i was talking to russ the the promoter of labyrinth and we went into the uh the sound booth and we were tinkering around with the eq there he's got his um uh poltex and and all that which is uh, very into tweaking around with and we, and we we were discussing this um difference between between the two of your sets and and he was saying that he noticed the same thing and had to run into the to the you know the, the sound booth and try and figure out how best to compensate essentially there was loads of bass in your set and hardly any in steve's when i say bass i mean kind of sub like anything like below below i don't know below 60 maybe call it to, to pluck a figure out of the air uh-huh. um and it reminded me of a conversation I had, so this, is, this is going around the houses, but it, it, there is a point to it. It reminded me of a conversation I had with Anthony Parasol mm-hmm. about about whether about how much sub there should be in techno, huh. and he was kind of of the opinion that that there shouldn't be too much. <laughs> so, at a very dogmatic and general level, where do you stand on that question? Uh... Okay. Well, first off, I'll say it's it's a question that I've never asked myself, and it's kind of more like if it sounds right, it is right kind of approach to things. <laughs> I but I, I I actually do remember I I played after Steve, and I Steve was DJing, I was playing live, so I think that might have had some part in it, possibly. Who knows? And then after me was Jonathan. Fatusi, I think his name is. It was a more kind of, um, it was like a beatless kind of set after me. But yeah, it all, I guess when you're talking about the sub, it all depends on the what the balance is of all the other things in there. And so my answer, my answer would be, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> but I, I definitely okay. wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to anything with music, I I think as soon as as soon as I I say yes, this is definitely the rule, then I instantly think of situations where, oh, actually, that isn't the rule. So okay, there's my <laughs> there's my short answer to your long question. Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Like, two word answer to my <laughs> long question. Um, okay, well, well, it's interesting that you bring up rules because. This leads me on another tangent I hadn't got written down, but I was listening to your, your appearance on the Air podcast, fairly recent appearance, in fact. I was listening to that this morning and you and you, you talked about that exact thing, the, the, the notion of like um, sort of acknowledging rules and then breaking them, essentially, and, and then that breaking of them being sort of the interesting bit, almost. Not always, but that being certainly an interesting bit and whether that's like structural rules or... I guess in the studio, um, you know, get getting into EQ and all that sort of thing. So, talk to me a little bit about that and how that kind of um, the difference. I, I guess maybe an interesting way of looking at it would be the difference between like performing and, and recording in that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, I think uh, I think that that kind of ties into I guess what I what I like about techno and why why I've 
I've basically been involved in it for 30 years now. It's because um, I, I feel like, I feel like to, well, what my definition of techno, even though I can't easily define it, but what techno is to me is a very, uh, is a very malleable form of music that can be um, stretched a lot. You can, you can add a lot of other um, influences and it can absorb a lot of different styles without, to me, without losing its identity of still being techno. So that's, so you can, you can break a lot of rules, but it's still techno. And, um, that's why, yeah, that's why I still find it interesting that it hasn't somehow, I don't feel like it's exhausted everything it could possibly do. It's like, um, I'm sure I remember reading something about in the Victorian, uh, times uh some scientists decided we've discovered everything there is to discover that's you know we can draw an, a line under science now yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, it's yeah. like yeah. it's it's the same thing where where you get i mean i don't know how many times i've heard people say well everything's been done in techno that can possibly be done it's 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 you know and i i still i keep hearing yeah i keep hearing new combinations that actually the people who make that music don't even call it techno uh, but to me, somehow it is. Um, this isn't really. Uh, I've I've gone off on another tangent. I'm not really talking about rule breaking there, but um, no, it's in the same ballpark though. It's it's to do with um, yeah, and it's also maybe it's also to do with the level that you're that you're thinking about the music on. Uh, that it can be fun uh, to to think about the music and think, you know, what is this? What's it doing? And how can I, how can I like mess around with that, that, um, that formula or structure or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, what you're saying about how sort of indefinable techno can be does definitely resonate. I say that there's a kind of contradiction that I sometimes detect though, um, within the sort within techno as a sort of community, which is that it's often quite, small c conservative in its approach and a lot of the kind of attitudes within it and within the, the audience and also within um you know the, the mindset of, of of producers can can be extremely conservative yeah i i i i absolutely agree yeah okay well i mean i, I just wanted to um a couple of examples that you uh you pointed to in your interview with dave clark in sound on sound ah, i can't even re- i can't even remember <laughs> what i said okay well you were talking I about it, i hope it's um, coherent <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was it was reasonably coherent, yeah. <laughs> but no, you were talking about using Final Scratch back in the early two thousands, and then moving to DJing with Ableton. And the term that you used was, was a kind of burn the witch reaction to both of those two things. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, how, I mean, how does how do you see that kind of contradiction within the whole thing? Well, I. I'm I'm a I'm a really stubborn person so if I you know when I saw Final Scratch I I recognized the potential of of that system and when I first actually kind of accidentally uh, DJed with Ableton I I recognized the 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 potential in that system and that's what I'm interested in and I want to explore that 
And sorry, Mike, can I, if I could just jump in, maybe you could just tell the story of uh, how that Ableton DJ set happened. So, uh, what was it? I think it was round about 2003. So coming up for 20, yeah, almost 20 years ago, um, uh, me and Regis got booked uh, to play at a big event in in the Netherlands. And uh, what we used to do at that time was I would DJ with Final Scratch and he would do a kind of live set kind of in the middle of that. And that was kind of fun. Uh, this is kind of pre the British Murder Boys project. And we... Uh, it turned out we and we'd usually play like a few hours doing that, uh, but we they they'd kind of accidentally given us like a fifty minute set for like both of us, and so we were like, oh, what are we going to do? You know, how how are we going to make good use of this fifty minutes we've got? So I I think I had Ableton on my laptop that I used for for the final scratch. So I back at the hotel, I kind of knocked up a set in Ableton with our, our music and we kind of played like that. And so it was just like a, a last minute thing that I kind of cobbled together, but I, I could see, I could uh, recognize the potential of using Ableton to DJ with and that, and literally from that set on, uh, that's what I used uh, much, <laughs> much to the uh, anger of, of some people at the time. <laughs> Yeah, how was that? How was that um, expressed? Um, I don't know. Lot, lots of people, you know, they, yeah, they just, they just weren't, they weren't into it, you know. And I, I, I can, I can fully accept that someone performing with a laptop isn't the greatest performance dynamic. And the whole time I used a laptop in my performance, I, I was always aware that it's. Uh, yeah, it's not a great performance dynamic, but yeah, I mean, bloke with laptop, yeah, it's not super visually engaging. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, no matter what you do, it yeah, it's not great having a laptop on stage. But um, there were other parts to it that that I was like really into exploring. I don't know, you know, when I when I when I recognise some potential in 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 a way of performing, I immediately want to explore it, and it's it's trying new things and pushing new boundaries. And I, I accept there are downsides to it, but people who are kind of traditionalists, I just, you know, I, I know that's the right way for me. So I just don't even hear you. <laughs> but like, I said, yeah, it's, it's part of, yeah, part of me. Yeah. It's part of me being uh, really stubborn in that, in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, um, like Richie Horton was also a really early adopter of Final Scratch, wasn't he? I seem to recall. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely, um, well, I mean, and and sort of similarly over the years, he's obviously in uh, embraced like every bit of new tech going, and you know, caught unbelievable amounts of heat as um, you know as part of the process. Uh-huh. Um, and actually, I think it was possibly him who was who had that business techno term <laughs> ah. direct directed at in the first place, which may be part of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, um, he's he's very good at selling these platforms, shall we say? Um, well, I mean, he's quite often invested in them. Yeah, so. and you know, for for me personally, it's just recognizing 
some artistic or performance potential in something and that's what I get really excited about and you know I definitely don't I I would say that I don't necessarily embrace every single new bit of kit that comes along it's more it's just about if I if I recognize a potential that I can use you know as a tool um that I get excited about it yeah and just so just to sort of draw a line under this, the conservative thing, like, like what's your take on that generally? Like, what, what, why is it? Well, well, it's, it's. Uh, I think, I think this kind of thing happens again and again, where you get, you get a form that, you know, you get a form that starts out being really radical and innovative, and then it kind of gets put in a museum and it gets set in stone, and it's like commandments written on stone tablets or something and then it kind of ends up being the opposite of what it started out to be and you see that with so many things like religions and lots of things like that so it's just you know humans love to love to um confine and restrain and quantify things it's it's in it's kind of in human nature to to like make things boring <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, techno does seem to be like particularly susceptible, though. I mean, just thinking about I mean, yeah, but I mean, I, I I agree with you, but but I agree in terms of when you're talking about I don't know what you want to call it, traditional or pure techno or something like that, you know, and that has a lot of great greatness to it and music in it, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean that you have to make a track with a nine oh nine drum machine or something like that, you know. I Well yeah, I mean that's it's almost um the nine oh nine is almost a kind of religious artifact in of itself, isn't it, at this point? Yeah, yeah. But for me for me personally, my my personal idea of techno is really, really broad. And for example, like I remember as as a good example of this, when uh, minimal techno really came up and and you know, heavier you know old old fashioned <laughs> techno uh kind of went down i i wasn't really digging the the minimal techno so i didn't go into that field but at that time uh grime which came into dubstep and all that kind of stuff was really coming up and that was really exciting to me so i uh this is like two, well, this is how we first two, came into contact yeah this is it? like 2003 yeah. 4 something like that I, yep. I started really, I, I, and I started playing that stuff in my sets. Again, it really upset some people, but other people <laughs> liked it, you know, and that I was just, that was just where I was finding the fresh music. So, and to me, you know, my idea of techno, um, that, that music came into that, you know, it was coming up from a different direction, but it, it, it fit into that kind of idea for me. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what I always do. If I'm, if, if contemporary techno isn't floating my boat, then I'll, I just got to look somewhere else for, for exciting music. Yeah. And you can find the same, like I said, I guess mindset, right? Cause I mean, techno is, well, I mean, the, the, the cliche is that, you know, it's just, it's the sound of the future, but that kind of implies a very, you know, forward thinking mentality to go along with it. And yeah, as you say, that's not always to be found in the techno scene, but you can you can always find it somewhere, right? And you're absolutely right that you know that early grime and dubstep scene 
was a genuinely new felt new yeah you know and it was definitely doing something which was um distinct yeah i mean it's you know you it's just that thing when you you hear some music and it's like wow art there's you know i can hear some great energy in that and i don't know it's just you hear you hear excitement in it and well you know at the uh at the time and there's always you know i always have this i always have this belief that there's there's so much music out there currently being made and has been made that if you know when people moan that whatever their scene is is boring then it's like well you've got to look there's you've got to look somewhere else you know there's there's going to be something great somewhere right under your nose probably yeah it's not really a great advert for what you're doing when you when you start saying that but um just um just to go back to that dubstep thing actually now that i think about it because um one of the things i've been trying to do on this podcast series is kind of try and join some dots together about you know people looking at different things from different perspectives so what do you remember what what was like what was it that initially caught your attention about that early grammar dubs that thing like was there was there a tune was there producers like what do you remember what what was the hook initially for you i i'm fairly sure that i first heard i first the first grime if you want to call it that tracks i heard were on um john peel's right yeah. radio show and i think it might have been something called army records maybe oh yeah not... oh, rossi rossi b's label yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, okay okay and then and then some like big uh, big apple records and things like that and oh yeah actually like the early banger and scream stuff and all that yeah um let me i actually because i wanted to kind of reference it there was um i remember oh yeah i remember there was um i found a website called dubplate.net and i and and i could or i could order vinyl i could order vinyl from there because no you know i didn't live anywhere near any record shops that, that sold that so i used to order records and i remember uh dump dump valve records there was uh there yeah, was yeah, this yeah. four motion ep which had uh genius and slimzy um just stuff like that on it and it was yeah it was awesome and i Wonder. and i would I and i would nice. yeah and i would um yeah i i would i would record the vinyl into my computer and i would play i would play those play those tracks in in with ableton in my dj sets that's so interesting that you're on that site because that was like <laughs> that was the the meeting point for the for everyone going to forward in those days you'd post up on dubplate.net forum in the week and then uh, once a month you'd get to go down and meet everyone uh, plastic people but i went to i went to i didn't go to any nights in in london but i um i'm not i don't live that far from bristol so i went to some of the subloaded oh, um God. events that that i remember pinch and vexed and uh, digital mystics and people like that down there and yeah just just lo- absolutely loved it yeah it was it was really exciting and there was, there was some what was so great about that early period actually was there was some quite a wide range of stuff being made within those kind of parameters that kind of 140-ish parameter yeah um and pla- and um, and plastician when he used to be plastic man as well <laughs> yeah yeah he yeah. was playing before he got sued by richie uh. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean, like, I would just, yeah, because, I mean, you mentioned Vex as well, because um, they remixed British Murder Boys, didn't they, I seem to recall? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, Rowley. Yeah. N- well, no, actually, uh, Rowley did, uh, he, I did a, a project called, 
a release called to whose bad hands are these and i got i got roly to do a remix and robert henker did a he did two monolake ones oh did he do one and orteca did one yeah so that and that that was definitely that was a project that was definitely influenced by by you know it's funny um even before i knew i knew about grime i i've always i've always loved um I don't know what some people might call kind of offbeat techno, you know, not non four four techno, and I've kind of played around with that a lot over the years. So, so I guess that's probably why that appealed to me. But I think that I think that's that's probably some kind of a a UK thing, isn't it? The the, the broken yeah, beat, the love yeah. of the broken beat, and I, I definitely <laughs> have that uh, for sure. Well, yeah, Even, I mean, to be honest, like because your a lot of your tunes on that kind of tip were completely compatible with that kind of du- the dubstepy type stuff or the sort of more the kind of harder I remember I used to play a lot of your tracks in my sets back then on that kind of tip and um it totally worked good yeah I mean I I've really I feel like recently I've really embraced that again in my DJ sets there's loads and loads of um new what I call techno but uh it's kind of coming from this kind of wider sort of bristol type of scene i'm just finding so much really exciting music and i know i know i know for sure that the people who make it don't probably don't talk, call it techno but but it definitely is to me and i i kind of i kind of uh basically trick <laughs> techno <laughs> techno crowds into into dancing to it and they they mostly kind of go along but yeah i mean i i yeah i love i love that kind of broken beat kind of stuff yeah, um, like a Batu album, which is oh, yeah. I believe just kind of is yeah, a good example. Really great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Batu and Ploy. Um, there's a guy called Avernian who's doing some really great stuff. Uh, yeah, loads of the Liberty releases, which you know, which are really varied, which is is great. Really, really great music. So okay, so I want to step back a bit, mm-hmm. uh, zoom out, and go. Uh, yeah, go back to some uh, some formative stuff. But like before, I mean, I want to talk about Birmingham in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Get some good good solid nostalgia uh, <laughs> stories out of you on that. But um, but before we before we do that, what I wanted to ask you, and but I think you may be able to illuminate me here because I've been trying to figure out for a long time now. Really, the kind of a, a few details about the sort of industrial noise scene of the eighties, which I know you were very influenced by or, or i think i think think you were is that is that am i right in saying that um well there's a kind of there's a sort of weird story to that because yeah ultimately i think that i ultimately it comes down to kind of me possibly misunderstanding what uh when people say industrial music, I think my what that means to me is not really the same as what it means to a lot of people. So I think there's kind of a, a misunderstanding there. So like, uh, I was never into like Ministry or Nine Inch Nails or or even like Nitzerab or something like that. I mean, to me, I you know the the sort of centre of this is is a a band called Coil. Mm. And, you know, they're really coming from Throbbing Gristle, who I I gather coined the term industrial music. So that's where that kind of connection is. But it's not really about... Uh, it's not really about 
like heavy rock kind of influenced yep. banging clanging rock influence stuff i've never i'm not i've never been a fan of heavy metal i've liked I, I like a whole lot of all kinds of music but but yeah i've never been like a huge fan of of heavy metal for example but um yeah so coil coil psychic tv um those kind of bands i don't know they're it's hard to kind of define is it, sorry, if I could just if I could just jump in a minute, is, yeah, is, it, yeah. fair, is it fair to say that there are there were some parallels between that kind of industrial um, movement and the metal movement? I mean, I'm I'm using metal as a kind of catch-all thing there, which is probably not that helpful because obviously there were so many different sides to metal, like going yeah. from you know new wave British heavy metal all the way up to stuff that was going on in the late nineties, but. Like I'm thinking of okay, basically, basically what I'm trying to understand here, right, is more the kind of political like stance of these various movements, and I'm not I'm not even sure if I mean political because like part of the parallel that I'm drawing between the kind of industrial thing and the metal thing was like the the imagery that was used in in lyrics and also in like artwork and stuff, and a lot of it was very what well, now. Um, seems quite trite sometimes, and then mm-hmm. was, was I guess like um, at the time intended to be shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just I'm so for example, I was um, you know reading about like William Bennett and his cut hands thing, and then his previous work, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering where this all kind of fits together. And you know, in in the current political environment, lots of this stuff is just completely anathema. But yeah, I, think I think it was different then, and I'm trying to figure out just what it all meant, basically. Yeah, I think I think it's it's probably summed up by the term transgressive. I think that's that's what they that's probably what they're exploring. But I mean, that wasn't really that wasn't what was really exciting to me. Really, it was just it was just about people exploring the edges of different parts of music. Really. Um, I think for me, the, the, the really interesting and exciting thing about what I, what I kind of thought of as in, as the industrial scene was this kind of tape, a cassette tape label kind of movement. And I remember you, there were these kind of, uh, little fanzines that you got and, and people ran cassette labels and they, you know, they made their they recorded their band or or whatever on like a four track tape recorder and they they made a tape and they and they you know traded it and sold it um through these um fanzines and to me that that was what the um the kind of late 80s industrial scene was and you just heard right. all this bizarre weird music that was like not officially released that was just on cassette and it was just just weird noisy noisy stuff so it's purely like a musical thing rather than any of the kind of messaging that went with it for you um i think yes it was just uh, sonically interesting to me and um i just took i just took the parts that were interesting fair enough um there's a question i have to ask you uh-huh. having having said that you don't like metal um uh-huh. you went on boiler room a few years ago wearing a burzum t-shirt tell me about that Okay, so here, so so here's here's so so the the actually the interesting thing about that was I I was not that was not a Burzum t-shirt 
and a lot and many many people uh saw saw it as a Burzum t-shirt it was um it was actually (laughs) well it's it's actually a picture uh it's actually uh a a black and white picture from uh Walt Disney's Bambi film right and the B of Burzum is in the Bambi font, so it's like it's oh, I see. it's basically a troll. Okay, Burzum T-shirt. A satirical take. Well, that, well, that's super interesting to be in in of itself because, like, the satire element of all that, like, mid, sort of mid eighties, um, you know, posturing. I suppose is the best way of putting it. Was often the. Um, the kind of defense, if you see what I mean, I'm not. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to put you in the corner here or anything like that. Don't uh-huh. get me. Um, I'm. I'm absolutely not trying to try, trying to trap you. I'm, I'm just genuinely curious about what all that stuff was. So actually, that that's actually Doris's T-shirt, right? And um, that was part of Deckmantle Festival, and we were there the whole weekend. I think I played like two other sets and then did the boiler room. Mm. And it was the day that I was going to do the boiler room and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to wear your, your Bambi Burzum t-shirt. And didn't re- I didn't think that much. It wasn't like... Did you get, did you get called out by people at the time? Yeah, well... Really, okay. No, no, more, 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 in, more in, in comments and things like that. Right. Um, but, you know, to me, it's, to me, it's a great example. It very clearly shows that people think they see something and very quickly jump to uh, a conclusion or a statement without actually realising what they're seeing. And it's a, it's a very clear example of that for me. Well, I mean, just going back to what you're saying about social media, it's that in a yeah. nutshell. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, see, there you go. no i mean i'm you know it's 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 like yeah i'm 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 yeah i'm trolling people and they're falling for it basically okay um all of that is fine and i'm not uh i say that wasn't a trap or anything like that i think i i did a i did another i I played a uh another boiler room uh a dj set in somewhere in portugal and i i wore a t-shirt with a horse and it said sucks to be you on it (laughs) <laughs> so, but no one really no one really got upset about that one so right well you know people are fickle aren't they they have their things but it's they... yeah it's it, it's also yeah it's also interesting how how much interest there is in the t-shirt and not really about the music but there you go yeah well that's a spoiler room for you i guess <laughs> um okay right so let's um let's put all this stuff to one side and um return to, to musical matters mm-hmm. um so you as we mentioned you were influenced by that industrial not industrial thing i mean coil were a really interesting band actually I, I wasn't super familiar with them until two days ago when i started preparing yeah. for this conversation and, and listened to a bunch of their stuff having seen you cite them as um as influence yeah they've they've they've, they've been a they've been a really i'd say they've been a really central part of my musical universe since about 1986 so a really, really long time. And so what then was the journey from Coil into releasing the first Surgeon 12 in 1994? Well, uh, when, like in the early 80s, I, you know, I was also, I also really liked, you know, electro and 
early early hip hop and electro kind of stuff like that. So, you know, there was that part of the the dance music thread. Um, but I think it was, yeah. I mean, I I was. I was making electronic music, but it was very bizarre, tape loopy kind of stuff. There was actually, um, Carl Regis actually released a seven inch single on this downward seven inch label uh, under under my name, Anthony Child. And it was, the release was called Boys School Showers and Swimming Pools. And it's actually cassettes of music that I made in the kind of mid eighties and stuff like that. So that's that's some of my kind of pre-techno sort of stuff. Oh right, right, right. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I came across that and wondered about that because um that was the 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 next Anthony Child release was the 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 um the Maui albums in twenty fifteen sixteen right. Uh, there was there was another one. There was the guitar treatments thing with with Andrew. Oh, maybe that's Reed. what I'm thinking of then. Okay, sorry. Go on. Uh, yeah, it was it was kind of earlier stuff than that. So yeah, I'd I'd. Uh, I'd I'd like made bizarre music uh, collage kind of music concrete type of type of music for quite a long time, but then uh, just had access to some uh, a drum machine and a keyboard, and um, at that time I was DJing, and it was just it was just about making it was just about making some tracks that um, to hopefully play in my DJ sets, and yeah, that was. Um, though those early that the first release at least was made round at uh mick harris's house because he he had some he had like a mixing desk and some outboard gear and i just i i like walked around to his house with um carrying the the keyboard and drum machine and um made those tracks in his house in his downstairs toilet actually that's what that's that he, he that was his his studio was his downstairs toilet uh, but the, the tracks which came out the for the first release yeah that was that was called the called uh surgeon ep and that was uh magnese yeah. move atoll and argon yeah and then the subsequent few 12s were made in a similar sort of way am i correct in thinking that by then, uh, I lived in a, a shared house and between us all, we had like various bits of equipment and it was kind of enough to cobble together to make, make music. And so the next, the next releases like Badger Bite and, um, all those kind of ones, um, were done. Yeah. At home. And yeah, I remember we, we had, um, we had like an, an electric meter that you had to feed tokens into. And I remember, I remembered literally times where I'm recording something and then the power goes off and it's like, Oh, okay, I guess that's the end of that session then. Um, and you know, and it was like the way it was, you know, when the power goes off, you've lost all the sequences and stuff, you know, you can't save them and things like that. So b- before DAW auto saves. Definitely. Yeah, this was definitely before. Um, I, rem- I think at the time people used oh, at- like an Atari ST. Mm. And so I think, uh, but yeah, I, I, that just looked too complicated. So I just used these, you know, basic kind of machines and just kind of played the desk in a kind of dub, sort of dubbed the desk, basically, and, you know, kind of arranged it uh, with the desk. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, that was something else that you mentioned actually in that in that Dave Clark uh, interview, um, like the influence of um, what you'd read about producers kind of using the desk as a as an instrument sort of thing i talked a bit a mm-hmm. little bit um with deadbeat about this on his on the interview that um the episode that we did with him hmm. um so i mean how much of uh um, how much of a thing was that for you i mean was was there was dub something that you were influenced by as well like musically or was it more of a studio thing or tell me about that uh yeah i mean that was something definitely in my in my universe um there were there were definitely uh like dub and reggae parties house parties happening in in birmingham that were there were a lot of fun um but what's what's really kind of fun about it is that at, at you know in this kind of pre-internet time i would i would like he- it was like i would hear about or or read about something, but you were you weren't able to, you know. Say I read somewhere, someone talking about, um, yeah, dubs not not the best example. A, a good example of it's like um, I read a book about music concrete, and it seemed really interesting to me. But I I was I, I had no way to actually hear any, even though it's like it's like it's it's like a musical form. So. I was yep. I was only able to read about it, but not actually hear it. And it's kind of it's similar thing with reading about dub production. You know, it gave me some some, some little hints and ideas, but I had to kind of fill in the gaps in my right. head and sort of apply it to what I was doing somehow because I I couldn't get the equipment that that they were actually um, producing that stuff. Well, yeah, and I guess reading reading about reading about it is a, is a far cry from like you know sitting next to King Tubby in the studio and <laughs> watching him. Yeah, or even or even being able to look at videos on YouTube of you know how to do a dub echo or something like that. You know, you have to kind of. I I love that thing about just trying to figure it out myself, and that's very much my my the way that I produce stuff is is not is not very. Um, textbook or something it's just it's a whole lot of like figuring it out so it's like when you were asking me about sub bass and stuff it's like oh really oh i didn't i didn't even know (laughs) it's like you know i just want it to like hit people in a certain way it's more yeah maybe i'm thinking about music more in terms of the effect it has on people and it's kind of a means to an end if that makes sense absolutely makes sense and i think yeah actually kind of um it also makes sense with something I think that you said in that uh, 
podcast where you were you were talking about kind of bringing the kind of spontaneity of I don't think spontaneity is the right word but like bringing the kind of the vibe of a live performance into the studio and I guess try, not, yeah. trying to avoid losing that I guess connection that audience connection with when you're making tracks yeah it's it's like I the th- you know I thought a lot about these things and the thing something I, I love about electronic music is this this kind of this balance this push and pull and and um uh in some ways kind of uh tension this relationship between a human and a machine and that's 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 this kind of line that i want to exp- explore i i like that i like that kind of relation and tension and uh push and pull kind of thing and i think that to kind of tap into that and explore that there there's for me there has to be a kind of a a live element to it i don't know maybe it's because i'm i'm not so good as like a a programmer you know when i when i make music i'm not i'm not so good at programming stuff other people are great at that and they really excel at that but it just for me i i like to have my hands on the the faders and the dials and that's where i i get that kind of human machine uh, interaction happening yeah that makes makes complete sense and um it's certainly very easy to lose that in the studio if you're not careful so how how's that kind of thing f- for you do you do you think about that that kind of uh that human <clears throat> that human machine kind of idea when you're when you're working in the studio yeah i i guess i do I think that I've I've gone through various different like methods of working yeah for over sure. the years and it's but it's just changed quite a lot. So um, I was in the box just purely in the box for a long time. Well, actually, well, I, I started off at the very start. Um, I just um, when I was a kid, I just, was I had got some money and bought a sampler, bought like an emu sampler, hmm. um, and that's how I got started really. And I had a little desk, and you know, the first scuba tunes were made like that, like with a like, you know, a little desk and emu sampler and um, and one outboard effects unit. Yeah. Um, and then and then I got a, you know figured that I couldn't get the sound. What was really funny about um <laughs> about my early journey was that I, I really got frustrated by having cable noise in my tunes, and I wanted dead silence. Huh. Um, so the reason I moved in the box really is because I just wanted to get rid of this bloody cable noise and then like you know you'd spend the rest of your rest of your time like you know fetishizing kind of hum and all and all that so <laughs> um, that was um, an interesting aside yeah, to my yeah. journey but like a few years back I, I went completely the other way and um, spent X amounts of pounds on lots and lots of machines and just did that for a while and it was like my music completely changed as a result and, and it took me a while to get any to any any sort of you know level where I was happy with what I was doing and I guess I guess I'm not really thinking about the audience so much I'm I'm, I'm kind of I have a constant kind of back and forth with myself mm-hmm. about how best to um kind of you know mine what's what might be good like lurking at the back there somewhere if you see what I mean yeah so so yeah um yeah, it's definitely it's definitely really really good um yeah i'm really really into the idea of trying different methods and setups and uh you know with with the gear and the 
computer and whatever I've got, and I just use them in different ways. And I I I like that. You know, when you change when you change the method, it kind of produces different results, um, and it's like a new thing to explore and learn. And then I've said that you know in those other interviews where you know I, I if I reach a point where it's like this is too kind of comfortable, it it just you know it's this kind of like burn it all down kind of um, urge I have where it's like, no, this is too comfortable. I must, I must destroy it. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, that's the industrial metal thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't know. But, I mean, it could be super, super useful just, just stepping out of your comfort zone completely and not giving yourself yeah. any kind of a crutch. Because I mean, like, it's, it's all very well you know, cause I, I guess I guess what happens when you when you work in a certain way is that you discover tricks and you discover things that work. Yeah, and you and you by you know, of course you go back to them like mm-hmm. you know subconsciously and consciously. So yeah, it's depriving about, it's about, yourself of that. Gone. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. No, no I was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all all I was saying really is that um, is that it, you know setting yourself challenges and and actually what what I find often actually is that setting yourself parameters can be useful. Because what I what I found with that really early setup that I described, just having a, just one sampler with hardly any sample time, yeah, you know, what an eight channel eight channel desk and and one effects unit was like, it really forces you to think creatively when you've got those kind of limitations. Absolutely. And conversely, when you've got you know thousands of plugins in a in a yeah. menu, it can be it's, just it's that problem where you know it's like. Um, yeah, I remember in the beginning, you know, I, I, I dreamt of having such and such a keyboard or drum machine. And, you know, when you finally get it, you're like, oh, it's actually kind of boring, <laughs> really. Um, um, you know, and, and I realize now what made my sound distinct, especially distinctive in the beginning was because I was using really crappy gear and having to work really hard to make it not sound really crappy. Um, but yeah, it took me like 20 years to realize that probably <laughs> well i mean you came up with some quite good stuff along the way in fairness yeah thanks um <laughs> uh yeah but i i don't know it's it's just um i guess it's it comes back to that attitude of never it's the same thing i was saying about the music where it's like i never think oh well that's the end i uh, that's i you never draw a line under something it's like there's always something else to discover you've just got to look a bit harder or somewhere else you know it's that same i have that same attitude with with the studio and you know there are long periods where like nothing's happening because i'm searching for the next for whatever i'm looking for yeah absolutely so i wanted to um as mentioned wanted to go back to birmingham in the 90s Mm -hmm. and yeah, basically, can give us a snapshot of essentially what it was like, like in terms of the kind of like the musical environment and obviously like the uh, sort of club scene, as it were. Um, like Birmingham is obviously a big city, but it's not one of the more kind of storied musical cities in the UK. So what was it like um, in like in, in the period that you, you were... Um, I guess beginning to really beginning to get into electronic music and obviously you know beginning to produce and all that. Yeah. Uh, um, so I I moved to Birmingham in 1989. I didn't grow up there. I grew up in a village outside Northampton, and um, I moved. I moved. I went to Birmingham to to study at Samuel College to do. A, 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 it's a technical college, and I was doing. Um, 
audio visual design because it, in, it involved um, sound engineering and that's kind of at the time what I wanted to do um, and you know in the late 80s early 90s there was there was quite a you know there was a country wide I, I realize now there was a, a, a country wide you know um, social revolution or something like that you know with yeah, with, yeah, with dance reasonable. music yeah. with you know with people going out and taking ecstasy and dancing to this kind of music you know it was it was a revolution and you know so that affected what was going on where i was i mean so what, I, at what point did you engage with that well i already liked electronic music so i knew there was something there i mean it was more it was I became a lot more interested. Again, it was through hearing stuff on John Peel. I heard, that's where I first heard like Underground Resistance, Belgian Hoover Rave tracks, um, you know, uh, and, you know, especially like early Warp stuff, LFO and Aphex Twin and things like that. You know, that was really, uh, that was really interesting to me. But, you know, initially where I remember it was literally like, two friends out out of a really wide um social acquaintances kind of um uh, group of people that i knew it was like there was like maybe two people who who had any interest whatsoever in dance music Every, everyone else just thought it was kind of a joke really um but that kind of grew and grew and grew until there were enough people to you know, DJ in the back room of uh, a pub in the red light area where, you know, the back room, they never used to open it up. I think they used to have punk gigs in there years ago or something. And, um, you know, and just started doing our own, doing our own um, events, you know, where we, we, you know, we didn't literally didn't have the money, the spare money to get a, you know, get a coach to London or something like that. So again, it's that, it was that thing about you hear that something's happening, but you can't actually experience it directly. So you, we, we just made it up. Um, but did you, um, so you, you just cut out there. So I didn't hear half what you just said and you may have answered this, um, in, in that previous answer, but were you going out raving in, in Birmingham? Uh, a bit. Um, I, there was there was a night at a place called the Mosley Dance Centre, and I could walk. It, it was like about a thirty minute walk from where I lived, and I used to walk there. And me, I think me and my friend used to, we used to we used to take some acid, and we'd walk there, and we'd sit we'd sit on these dance platforms and everyone else is on ecstasy right. and we're we're just like totally mesmerized by the lights and the fog and the music and we're just sat on the dance platforms everyone else is like jumping about going come on come on come on and we're just like staring at them going what am i looking at you know so it was kind of that was that, that was some of my first sort of experiences of that and what um do, do you remember who was playing like what kind of djs were were playing that I definitely remember that LSD was playing. Yep. Um, possibly, that, I don't know if I'm mixing it up, but maybe Frank, they had Frank DeWolf or someone. It was very sort of Belgium, Belgian rave kind of 
stuff. Yeah, that kind of hardcore crossover kind of yeah thing. Yeah. Um, but what was what was great was I was hearing it at that volume for the first time, and that was like, oh, okay, I get it now because it kind of until until you hear it a uh, physical volume, it sort of sound. I could I can see why people were like, what 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 is this music? You know it. It kind of doesn't make sense without being being that that kind of volume. So, um, yeah, it was great. It was it was great fun. And you know, we, me, and just other friends who are, who like that music, we just, you know, we know we knew a guy who had who who had his own PA. So we'd like pay him some money, and and um, you know, he'd bring it to the pub, and we'd hook up some decks, and you know, just it just started off in this very sort of DIY way, and. Um, like nights like House of God came out of that. Yeah, so that's that was the key one, right? In um in the whole Birmingham techno thing, of which you were a long-standing resident. In fact, it was it's still going, or was still going up until the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah, we we actually have uh, the 29th birthday <laughs> coming up. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, that's in yeah in April, 29th birthday. Um. Yeah, House of God, lo- lo- loads of fun. You know, it's I, I've I've been involved with it. You know, since since it began, you know, been one of the kind of first kind of residents of it and stuff like that, and still, 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 still going. You know, so what made it distinctive? Because it definitely did acquire a reputation. Like I mean, likewise, the whole. I mean, there was a, and there is, there remains a kind of Birmingham techno like aesthetic of which House of God was definitely part. And obviously the music was key, you know, people like, you know, Regis and Female and, and all the rest of it. Um, but what was, what, what, in your opinion, what was it that made it stand out? Uh, I think that, I think that, that House of God is one thing and what is known outside of Birmingham as Birmingham techno is a different thing and they do overlap, mainly through me, really. But I mean, Carl Regis was not, he has occasionally played at house of god but it's funny how some people thought that house of god was playing downwards records from start to finish uh, you know in, in a night and it's definitely not you know it's definitely a uh, a, a big stupid rave you know it's right, it's okay. <laughs> it's it's you know it really it doesn't take itself too seriously and there's a lot of you know it's it's become known for like really heavy music but that's always only been a part of it and you quite often find that people only remember the heaviest say track on an album or something or or heaviest track that you've ever ever made where and it's the same with house of god you know we we've always started off with more like chicago house type of stuff or something you know we we don't just start off hammer and tongs kind of thing but it's i don't know since the beginning it was like okay i'm gonna try and find the most like crazy fucked up music to like blow people's heads off and uh yeah it's kind of to some extent still still like that but you know back back when we started um i don't know we yeah we just wanted to give people a really intense experience and and that's what we did. <laughs> um, so so who were the other resident, residents initially? There's uh, Paul Bailey, uh, aka Paul Damage, 
<laughs> and uh, there's Neil Surreal and uh, Nikki B, Terry Donovan, loads of people. And you mentioned in, I think it was again that um, Dave Clark interview, that there was a kind of sort of healthy competition between the residents and you all kind of like pushed each other yeah, yeah. to, and, and that kind of reminded me a bit actually of that kind of early dubstep thing and it was a kind of um you know everyone's trying to you know kind of not not so much jockeying for position but trying to show that they're doing <clears throat> like cool stuff essentially yeah you know? yeah it's it's great when you when you have that for sure yeah i mean it can be extremely creative actually yeah i i that's yeah that's definitely when uh when a musical scene is is you know, you're 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 pushing at the edge of something where everyone's like, "Oh yeah, check this out!" And you know, they're you know the the game is upped again and again and again. Um, yeah, it was definitely it's definitely like that. With I think there's still there's still a good kind of healthy rivalry, uh, friendly rivalry uh, with 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 everyone you know there. But that's that's kind of what what it kind of runs on. But it's definitely there's definitely like. Um, a kind of punk energy behind it as well um and uh yeah just that 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 sort of irreverent birmingham humor type of thing where i don't know i think a lot of the time people outside of birmingham just think it's like it's just dark and that's it but there's there's <laughs> definitely a lot of it's the humor's always in there it's the same with like downwards and stuff like that it's just it's a bit more uh, hidden Okay, so let's let's talk about Regis actually. Now that we're roughly on the topic, because I mean you're definitely associated quite closely with him, obviously because of a label, but also because of doing British Murder Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never actually met him. Um, yeah. I I know only know of him, you know, through well, I, I'm, I know Function very well. And obviously, those guys mm-hmm. work work together and talked about um, experience of that. But like, so, um, so what what would you say your influence was on each other, if I can put it like that? Um, that's, uh, yeah, that's a difficult one. Maybe, maybe someone who isn't either of us might answer (laughs) that better. I don't know. I think that it's like, yeah, I think we, you know, we definitely have crossovers, but we're also quite different people. And I think that there's, uh, there's often an assumption that, we like exactly the same music, whereas there's only there are points of of crossover. But I think our musical tastes are quite largely quite different from each other. But that, I think that's a good thing. Um, but there's always yeah, there's some really special uh, special kind of energy that we create together, and I think that comes across. That's what people see and feel when we when we perform together. Um, and I think even though we didn't go to school together and didn't know each other until, I mean, Carl was coming to nights I DJed at before I knew him. Um, but we always said there was this thing that we create where if we did go to, if we had gone to school together, they would have not let us sit together they would have separated us they would have moved us into different classes because when we when we get together there's some kind of troublemaker um um, energy that that's uh that's happening and um yeah that's really fun and that's you know yeah i really love carl for that how does that manifest itself in the studio 
that kind of um, uh, a slight element of danger? Well, I don't know. There, there have been points of of uh, uh, physical conflict, <laughs> um, but I don't know. That's just what it creates. I think actually, um, we one of the early British Murder Boys tracks was uh, called "Learn Your Lesson," and there's a there's like a a breakdown where Carl's like shouting. And we were recording that and Doris heard us and she came up and she was really worried, concerned that we were like having like a physical fight, but we were, we were just trying to like get this, get this kind of vocal performance happening. Um, but I don't know, we've, we've done a lot of stuff remotely as well, where um, one of us will create some material and the other one will work on it. And I don't know, we've, we've worked... Uh, We've worked in a lot of different ways um, together. Um, but yeah, mostly going on 20 years ago. Yeah. So that brings us on nicely to, um, and neatly, to just collaboration more generally, because you've done a lot of collaboration over your career, both um, performing and also in the studio, mm -hmm. um, and covering quite a wide range of kind of musical styles like obviously the uh transcendence orchestra stuff is very different no oh, yeah um so how, i guess the question is how do you approach collaborating like is is there a common approach and then like you know t tell me a little bit about the different examples uh i think that um yeah i guess the different i i feel like the different collaborations i've done have have all had really quite different characters to them, the performances and and any kind of studio stuff. And I think uh, I just attempt to try to recognise, um, be aware of what what me and that other person are creating together, and and kind of go go where the music wants to go, rather than me trying to impose some sort of restriction on it and trying to just let it be what it wants to be really i think was that your question i i kind of i was answering it and then it's one of those things where i'm answering it and then i'm aware that i can't remember what the question was now yeah no no that's i mean like that's the general principle i guess which yeah. was part of the question yeah absolutely um so then like i mean have there been like any real big like contrast in 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 the actual kind of like doing of a of a collaboration like you know obviously um you know everyone's different and everyone's approach to working is different and there are um you know sometimes egos involved in the rest of it so like give me something like a couple of examples maybe of uh interesting uh, and noteworthy collabs um, other than having a fight with regis yeah <laughs> um i don't know i i i I mean, just broadly speaking, I, I really, I love, I love working and particularly performing live with people who are really open and really good at listening, you know, and don't get too involved, for example, with what they're doing, you know, because it's, it's all about live improvisation and that's what, what all of these things kind of, uh, I really love exploring and it's just working with people who are good at, sort of sensitive listeners um and you know that's really fun that's that's really really fun with the transcendence orchestra because there are much less definitions and boundaries in the beginning and we really don't know with a live performance we don't know 
we don't even discuss what we're going to do. We just kind of like feel it out. And uh, that's that's really fun because there's a big sense of danger because you're you're there, you're doing a performance and the audience is in front of you and you step out, you step on the stage and you're like, I actually don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, I, I, I would never like do bungee jumping, but that's my equivalent of it, <laughs> if, if you know what I mean. That sounds scarier than bungee jumping, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is. But I, I love, that's such a thrill for me to like, but when you actually can pull it off, it's like, that's, yeah, that's, that's the best thing ever. How do you start? <laughs> with a noise that goes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you just start off with an, uh, like that and, and go from there. I remember. Uh, oh yeah. Because we, sorry, we, we, we were gonna, we were gonna perform at Labyrinth, but the first day was canceled because of the typhoon. Oh, um, right, yeah. yeah. So we were really gutted about that. And so was, um, so was Russ. So I really hope there's a chance to do that again. Cause that would, that would be perfect for the um the acid soaked uh, um atmosphere at um Opening night yeah great now i was what i was just going to um what i was just remembering was um witnessing one of the one of the best live sets i've seen actually which was which was at labyrinth it was um atom and tobias no oh, wow um Dan, and I, I asked him the same question like afterwards. I was like, "How did you start?" Like, because it was seemingly three hours, like completely improvised. I was like, mm-hmm. "What? How? And how does? <laughs> what? What? Just explain this." And it was basically a similar sort of answer, to be honest. So, yeah, yeah, I suppose it's just like it's like don't rush it, take your time. Um, and being the weird thing about live improvisation is that you that you know your the performer's perception of time is is really really different from the audience and you can always be going oh no this has gone on too long and and want to and want to kind of panic and change it and it's always good to just like okay let it go another another loop round or, or whatever and oh, yeah. um you know just just yeah i mean you talked about their performance being like three hours it's like that's you know you know you've got enough time so you don't need to rush it and you just need to feel out kind of open your awareness and like, okay, what is this? Where does it want to go? And just, um, you know, if you can do that, um, it, it just kind of, it makes itself really. And I guess like dance music generally lends itself to that sort of like open-ended kind of structure as well. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of looping, looping back to that kind of the versatile form that techno is kind of idea. So so yeah, you can. Um, yeah, it works well for that. No, I was just reminded of the <laughs> of the um, uh, the story of uh, like Led Zeppelin playing at Earl's Court, and suppose like the the writer had uh, well, Jimmy Page had started his solo, and the writer found the time to nip across the road for a pint and come back before he <laughs> finished it. But <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but but it's but it's different, right? Because um, like rock music is fundamentally different in its you know in its structures and it's obviously there is some the tradition of jam bands and the rest of it but it it is fundamentally different to a kind of eyes down kind of clubbing environment and aesthetic right yeah um and may i don't know sometimes people uh bring elements of of kind of rock performances in and maybe maybe that's maybe that's what business techno is Oh yeah. 
it's like a a state a stadium band kind of uh, approach to uh to electronic dance music there that's my definition okay that's that's on the record um right so a couple of other things mm-hmm. um there were two two other things actually that came out of that air interview which i wanted to just explore a little bit further they're kind of related but one was the the relationship between artistic authenticity as in like what you consider to be authentic as an artist versus underground credibility hmm. and then the second thing was uh, the relationship between self-delusion and confidence hmm. so those are two different things but they're sort of linked so let's just take taking the first one first and maybe they'll maybe we'll run into the other mm-hmm. but um like I guess the underground credibility thing goes back a little bit to what we were talking about, the sort of um, the conservative impulses uh, of uh-huh. um, certain dance scenes and techno in particular. But so how do you, how do you see those two things? Um, re- how do they relate to each other, I guess, is, is the question. So uh, what was it, underground credibility and... Authenticity, or well, the, the way you perceive your own authenticity, I suppose, as an artist. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I could sum it up by saying underground credibility is decided by something outside of you that you can choose to care about or not. And authenticity is, for me anyway, uh, an internal thing. <laughs> that's, my, that's, that's my concise answer. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, underground i don't know what what is can, can yeah i mean what what to what to you is is what to you is underground credibility well i, I mean what i was going to say just then was um you know what if you perceive yourself to be part of a quote-unquote scene then the rules to go back to that concept as well the rules of that scene are something that you probably like have some sort of respect for and maybe even feel some kind of ownership over. So that presumably will affect your perception of your own authenticity to a degree, perhaps, probably in in, in certain cases. So I guess that's kind of what I'm I'm getting at. Because I mean, I, I think I think what you the, the way you characterise it as in like one's external, one's internal. That's that's completely legitimate. But the, but the two things are, um, well, well, the internal is is certainly influenced by the external. I would, I would argue. Yeah, yeah, and uh, neither they, they, neither of them exist uh, in a vacuum. But um, yeah, I, 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 in the classic way, I was thinking of something while you were talking. And now I've forgotten <laughs> what that was. <laughs> getting, uh, getting, getting a bit old. I got, got, got to, got to admit, I am getting a bit old. But um, I don't know. It just made me think about, you know, if you're in a scene and you're, and you're like working on the cutting edge of something and someone comes out comes out with something that's like really different and you might be like oh oh what's this but then i don't know for example if it's like dance music and you see it uh, i don't know, creating a really great reaction or or effect or something then then i don't know uh that could make me change my mind about about that i don't know if i'm really answering the question now do you mean, do you mean by by that do you mean um like the do you, you mean you were you were you were kind of seduced by that or that you would want to avoid that 
Uh, well, you were talking about like, you know, in terms of talking about rules, about what sure. you can do in your scene and someone kind of breaks the rules and it's like, oh, uh, you know, is that allowed? And then you see you see that working really well and you're like, ah, good. You know, we've we've kind of um, expanded the boundaries of this. Um, yeah, it's it, maybe it's a kind of a mean uh, it's a kind of a means to an end kind of um, approach to it. I don't know. I mean, things like underground are, are just just really uh, just really relative, and maybe I don't know. Maybe it's fair enough to be obsessed by that when you're in your twenties, but maybe not so much afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely fair, and it's, it's definitely one of those things where um, the ability to kind of take a step back is often extremely illuminating on what you know what those terms actually mean hmm. so i mean so, so i mean i have a, another question which i just had a, a random one but this it totally fits in with this actually which was um you opening for lady gaga mm-hmm. um were you i mean to, to what extent have you ever been a pop fan um i I'm aware of it. It's largely through Doris, actually. Her her musical taste is w- way wider than mine, and it goes into pop and Eurovision and all kinds of bizarre things. Um, but I I went to a Lady Gaga concert because Doris bought tickets, and like, right. I just went to go and check it out. And I quite like I quite like that. To you know, okay, I don't really know a whole you know. I don't know their whole catalogue, but I'm going to go and check out this artist who's really famous. Are they any good, you know, on this kind of object, objective level, you know, as a performer, you know? Right, because a good show is a good show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I love I love that thing about being, you know, I'm not invested as a fan, but I can watch it on this kind of geeky technical level of yeah. a performer. I love that. I love watching people perform. I love stand-up comedy loads of things like that just to watch people perform how are you gonna how are you gonna like pull it off um so yeah that's why i went to that to that to that gig and was astounded that that the um colleen um lady starlight like kind of name checked me on stage i was like what is happening <laughs> this is a little bizarre that must have been extremely surreal yeah very pure um candid camera moment so Tell me about the show that you played. Oh, so we, me and Colleen did, we played opening for her at, at a, another Birmingham show because I think the tour, I met them in Birmingham and then the tour came back around again, the same tour. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up, and then we ended up playing on the last show, which was in Paris. And that's kind of the one where the video was there and stuff. And I did, I definitely had this thought before, is this gonna finish my career? <laughs> but you know, I, 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 I don't know. It was just like it was this bizarre thing that that the universe presented to me, and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna do this. This is just a laugh. There wasn't any like game plan or oh, I'm gonna break to a pop audience. I knew that wasn't gonna happen. It was just doing it for a laugh. It was just so totally absurd that I had to do it. But I did think, hmm, maybe this will finish, 
but you know it was like well so so be it no yeah. but you have to do it you surely you have to you do it you have to do it 100% you don't these things don't happen to you every day so it's like you've got to do it that that was my attitude and it's like if this if this does completely destroy my career then then that's the way it's going to be but it but actually the thought the thought of how upsetting that is for for techno purists was a a big appeal to me okay and and was it was there blowback yeah uh yeah yeah no it was very confusing for a lot of people at first (laughs) they were like what the fuck but um yeah it was uh i don't know it's weird it's almost it's almost kind of disappeared into 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 history now so, I mean, what you just mentioned there actually does sort of relate to the second thing that we, um, the second point that I, I wanted to dig into, which was the re- relationship between delusion and confidence. Because what you just said that you kind of like quite relished the idea of pissing people off, that kind of hints at a fairly high degree of confidence actually in yourself and your position actually. Or stupid stupidity. Well, that's it. <laughs> is, is, it. Is, it is it delusion or is it is it confidence? You know, like, because I mean, the two things are definitely related. I, I see that, but there's there there is a I don't know. Carl, Carl and I often talk about that. There's we both have a an urge to burn burn it down, you know. And I think that that's part of it as well. It's just uh, you know, if you if you create something, there's definitely at the same time I, I definitely have an urge to to destroy what I've what I've made. I don't know. Where does that come from? Do you think? I don't know. That's it's it's fairly unhealthy. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty unhealthy urge. Well, it implies that you're going to create something in the first place, though. That's a good point. Uh, uh, you you were asking something. Sorry, I got I got lost <laughs> well, somewhere. Well, it was the relationship between delusion and confidence, and to what oh. degree, to what to what extent are they different? Um, or, to what extent does one require the other? I guess is another way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I that that's funny. I I've I've talked with people who've kind of said the same thing, who've said that from the outside they see something as confidence, but to me I see it as the d- delusion. Um right. but you know, if I think about it, then it's like, oh yeah, I guess I guess it is confidence, but it I don't know. It's like it's this thing where I wouldn't describe myself as a confident person, but if I look at these things i can kind of go oh yeah maybe i am (laughs) i mean (laughs) but i wouldn't label my i wouldn't automatically label myself in that way if that makes sense right i mean okay so i was talking on the the episode i did with tiga we were talking about his um high levels of confidence and i wonder to what extent the kind of like british modesty kind of forbids uh element is at play here because the kind of north american Attitude, I think, is a, is a little bit different just to stereotype all North Americans and also British people. But yeah. I mean, the way Vulgar. you just characterize Vulgar. it, <laughs> the way you just characterize it is extremely <laughs> British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, yeah, I can't shake that for sure. Yeah, it's just how you know. I don't know. It's just how we're how we're brought up by having our teachers beat us and throw things at us and <laughs> stuff like that. You know, it, it, it has an effect. I was just going to say the um, <laughs> the legacy of Suez is uh, a play, but I mean, let's not let's not get too deep into imperial history. Oh, the, yeah, there's so many things that have <laughs> the, the 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 scarred the national psyche. Yeah. Okay. So there's one 
one last area that I want to talk about. Um, and it's one that basically I'm just asking the same question to everyone who comes on, mm-hmm. um, which is regarding the album format and the extent to which uh, it's relevant and how that's changed. And also kind of what has become increasingly clear is that like like long for, longer form bodies of work of which the album is, you know, the most common and you know, because of, I guess, retail reasons. But like producers tend to like really set a lot of um, importance in that. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess on the face of it, it's completely unsurprising, but it really does seem like almost a kind of like fetishization of, of, of the album format in particular. And probably this is explainable because of, I've generally been asked in this question of, of producers of a certain age as well, which probably um, colors the... Uh, <laughs> of a certain age. <laughs> to, to, put, to, put it, to put it delicately. Um, <laughs> but I wondered if you could just answer that question just to get going. Like, well, how do you see the album format generally? Is it important to you? Yeah, it is, but I recognise that it is so in this kind of uh, historical, uh, yeah, this historical idea context, you know, I don't know, Beatles albums or something like that, you know, that kind of idea. Um, I mean, you know, when it comes to things like album formats, even, um, you know, formats that music is listened to, consumed, purchased or or whatever, you know. Um yeah, it's definitely a really interesting time and I don't I don't know I don't know where things are gonna land, but they are yeah, they're changing all the time. Um I'm just trying to keep a bit of an eye on what's going on. But yeah, I mean I, I definitely agree that, you know, I like I like the album format, but I recognise that it's it's quite to an extent, it's a, it's like an old-fashioned, definitely an old-fashioned format that I guess comes from how much music you can fit on a piece of vinyl. I guess it's it's dif- down to that. And same so with just, like um, C- CDs or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to ask um, what you were just saying there about how you ha- you're keeping an eye on it. Um, I guess to an extent that's because you're basically self-releasing everything these days. Is that correct? Yeah, I yeah, I have been for a while, I guess. Uh I mean uh I've done I did a couple of 12 inches for Ilian tape. But yeah, most most of what I do is release myself. I mean, um Editions Mego released some of the Anthony Child stuff and and the three Transcendence Orchestra albums, but that, you know, that um label's finished now. Um, so yeah, largely self-releasing. Um, but and that means you have to keep an eye on the, the, I guess the retail trends to, you know, put it in a slightly unfortunate way. Um, well, it's just, it's like, it's, it's the, it's the balance of what new things are happening in technology and how how that connects with uh people who who are interested in in the music it's a, yeah it's a complicated uh i'm sure as you know it's it's a complicated equation and you know things yeah a lot of things are changing for sure yeah absolutely and it is um i guess you have to uh well i mean 
you definitely have to keep an eye on you know new people coming into it and how they want to consume for want of a better word music trying to keep an you know being an old older player in the game but trying to keep an open mind and not you know i i just never want to be one of these people who who yeah like i've said a few times in this interview you know shut things down draw a line under something and say no that's wrong nothing you know this is the only way it can be you know i always recognize you know to me that's always the wrong um mental approach to to something just try to try to stay open-minded and um you know even when even when uh new things come along that initially don't seem that interesting it's like well maybe someone had just hasn't figured out the best way of using it yet that kind of idea i mean this may be what you're referring to there but how do you feel about the whole web3 nft thing that's that's kind of what that's one of the things i'm kind of keeping an eye on it's yeah it's i i i i hope it turns into something good (laughs) (laughs) um you know i i i can see how like initially the kind of nft art thing could really put people off you know this kind of hyper capitalism and and you know crappy art kind of thing um you know how people wonder how that can relate to their music and how they release music but you know it's just it just takes someone using using that that method in a, in a in a in a um in a way that can connect the artist and the the person who who who's interested in the music um, so yeah, I'm just keeping my eye on that. I, I kind of feel like yeah, it's not there yet, but you know, uh, I I I'm I'm optimistic that something is going to turn out. Yeah, and I think the um, I think the problem with it at the moment is that people sort of define it like exclusively as how it's been sort of used, most commonly used anyway. So like yeah, your example of you know crappy JPEGs being sold for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. It just it doesn't look good, does it? Like you know, it's just mm. at a very basic level. But I reckon I recognise that there, there's a lot more potential behind it, um, and that I hope that I hope uh, kind of uh, comes through. Yeah, I mean, I guess that the way I see it is kind of it, it's more about like a new, like a, a fresh concept of like ownership, like in a, in the digital realm. Because obviously, mm-hmm. the problem with with digital music has always been that it's like it's inherently not collectible like in any kind of a way like it's yeah. you know the, the you know, downloads obviously are replicable and streaming is you know not in in the same ballpark but it's quite an interesting concept having a like a scarce asset that exists purely digitally i think i think it's quite a cool thing generally like just the concept of it is quite interesting i think i think i think it's quite difficult for people to get their heads around just that in itself you know quite often yeah yeah but um yeah okay well listen um just a couple of final things still sticking on albums you you did your first i think it was three albums with trezor is it was it three i think i read you signed a three album deal and then bought a load of kit but like was it it was actually three albums you did with them in the end yeah i did uh basic tonal vocabulary balance and force and form so my question was basically like to what extent did they a and r those albums as in like you know were they involved with the actual process and then and then how has it been different either working 
just without any supervision or you know or, or how has the process changed essentially um they were they were they were excellent about that they basically didn't a and r them them at all i i i gave them like a dat and said here's the album and they took it they took it as is <laughs> really well. um and you know kind of same with the artwork really you know if i if i if i had a specific person i wanted to do the artwork or an idea or something like that they would they would go along with that and i i mean i think my understanding is that the other artists who work with Trezor actually wanted to send 100 tracks and have the label pick them and stuff i mean it can be I guess because I've never had really any A and R input, but I actually I, I can imagine it being quite useful potentially if it's constructive. Uh, let me let me I'll give you an example actually. Um, so I was talking to Machine, Machine Drum, mm-hmm. and he released an album on Planet Mew, and Mike Paradinus is legendarily hands on with all the music that comes out on Planet Mew. So he'll be like, you know, giving feedback to early demos and telling you where to put your breakdowns and like, you know, picking the album track list and, you know, the running order and all that stuff. Um, and he he found that quite, like, quite useful, particularly because he'd been a, you know, a fan of of his music and, and the label generally. Mm. But then moving to, he moved to Ninja Tune and um, had, a, had, a, had less kind of oversight but also, um, you know, when he was, he commented that, um, you know, not knowing, because like, it's different having someone who, who you already, already respect just because of their music telling you what to do. Like you know, he said, actually, that Mike said one of his tunes was shit. <laughs> like it's like okay, like if some like you know A and R lackey at Ninja Tune had said that, I would have mm. you know, walked out of the deal immediately. But actually, you know, sometimes it can be it can it can be useful. You know, so does that resonate at all? I yeah I've never I've never worked that way I mean I think I've always worked in a way when I've released with other labels it's it's been delivering the finished thing I mean there was a bit of I'd say I I did I did some music for a video game called Midnight Club and that was the that was the nearest I sent some tracks and there were and I got some feedback on them and I did some adjustments and but yeah, very. I've only ever really worked with very light touch A and Ring. I don't know. I I think yeah, it's like it, maybe it's part of my stubbornness, where you know, in an ego thing as well, where I I just feel like okay, this is right, you know, and um, that's yeah, that's how it works for me. Yeah, fair enough. And I'm, I I think I would react pretty badly to be being told something was shit to be honest <laughs> yeah i mean i i think i think i i feel you know as time goes on i feel more open than i than i ever have done that's to say not at all <laughs> to to <laughs> to any form of anring but uh yeah i mean i yeah i i recognize how that can work that can work well for some artists and maybe yeah it'd be it would be an interesting exercise i mean i guess I, I guess a big part of it is that it's it can be very difficult to get like objective feedback from anyone on stuff you're making i mean have you got do you have people who you play stuff to generally just to you know just as a sort of sounding board yeah um yeah maybe like carl um and dan who i do transcendence orchestra with you know there's there's a lot of um back and forth but it's very you know very much kind of close 
close friends kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that that kind of honest feedback, especially when you're doing something kind of it's a bit just a bit of a sort of departure, can be extremely useful. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's like, I guess I guess in in an ideal world, that's the function A and Ring feels. So, final question, uh-huh. and it's quite an annoying one, but um, give me a few albums that you like. A few albums that I like. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say your favourite albums, but like, just that's why I phrase it like that. What's your favourite album, um, Tony? What's my favourite? I um, no, 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 no. Just, just give me a few good ones that you, you're feeling. I really like. Uh, <laughs> I, re- <laughs> I, I really like uh, Coil versus Elf. Worship the glitch. Okay. Um, and um, hold on. <laughs> if I. You can take your time. No pressure. I oh I really I I'm a I'm a big fan of Sluggerbed. I oh, really okay. Because uh, I I knew him from the kind of dubstep the kind of yeah. pur- purple ish yeah, if yeah, you call yeah. it that dubstep stuff. But he's been doing. Have uh, you heard what he's been doing more recently? You know what I haven't. I've seen his name around, but I actually haven't listened to any of the music. It's it's really bizarre um and totally amazing it's not dubstep really it's definitely not dubstep but it's it's like i mean he was always quite hip-hop influenced so is it in that sort of ballpark or yeah it's sort of uh what was it it would it was like it's slightly like if apex twin was really influenced by jazz oh right (laughs) okay (laughs) um so yeah he's doing really really amazing stuff um uh, yeah um uh, yeah it's it's i don't know it, it's just always one of these things where when someone says what what music do you like at the moment i just draw a blank and i i have to like look at my computer and let that kind of tell me uh I, you know i like i really like uh kind of discovering early electronic music pioneers there was uh, someone recently called maggie payne um, whose work I didn't know of before, but it, again, it's one of these things where from so, what kind of era? Is that? Uh, this is late seventies, early eighties. I think she was a very early computer music uh, producer. Um, again, it's one of these things. On someone I follow on Twitter um, mentions her work, and I'm like, I've never heard of her, so I check it out and go, oh, this is amazing. Yeah, I don't know. Give me one more. One more. Let me see. Let me let me scroll through. <laughs> ah, there's a guy. There's a guy from Birmingham called Zygurat. Z y g g u r a t. Um, he does this. He does stuff with a kind of modular synthesizer, but not in this typical bleep bloop sort of way. And he did an album with a drummer, and he again he's coming from a kind of jazz background, and that. That really blew me away. I I saw him. I went to see. What's the album called? Sorry. Uh, it's Zygarat by Zygarat. Okay. I think you can find him on on Bandcamp. But um, I saw him uh, supporting um, this guy Sonic Boom at a, at a gig in in Birmingham, and uh, yeah, he um, the the support act just blew me away, and I was like, who is this guy? And just been kind of. Um, in contact with him since then okay well thanks for doing this mate 
really enjoyed it. Yeah, good fun to to chat again. Not not being rained on in a field in Japan. <laughs> yeah, that was Surgeon and um, really fun conversation to have. That one. Um, I loved getting his take on his approach to making music and I guess his sort of philosophy on techno. Um, and uh, I'm glad to be validated in my view that um, techno can be quite conservative. We put that up on Twitter and people don't like it at all. They really don't. But I do think it's true. But as we said, there's always good music out there. You just got to look for it. There's always exciting stuff happening. I say that despite what I've said before about there not having been a huge amount of um, new or notable new trends happen in the last 10 years in electronic music generally. That can still be true. There's always, a, it's always interesting things happening. There's always good music being made. I do stand by that comment about um, lack of a kind of big shifts forward in that last decade or so. Um, anyway, I was going to... Um, well, we, we talked about the um, kind of theme of transgression in um, the noise industrial scene and going into the metal scene and stuff. And I was going to talk a bit more about that in this um, post-conversation section. But I've realised, having done a bit more reading on it, that I'm not quite ready to um, uh, opine <laughs> authoritatively on that subject just yet. So maybe I'm going to look at getting someone else on to talk about that stuff a little bit more because it's something I find really interesting, particularly in the context of today's sort of political landscape. So I'm going to think about that a bit more and um, read a bit more. And uh, yeah, I think a topic to be discussed at a later date. So um, just before we go... We don't have any releases this week on Hot Flush or affiliated labels, but obviously you can get involved with us musically at hotflush.bandcamp.com or wherever you get your music. But Bandcamp's a good place, as good a place as any. And uh, yeah, leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. It really does help. Get us in the Discord if you've got anything to say to me about any of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast, any of the episodes, there's a link in the show notes to join us in the Discord. Uh, that's a hot flush Discord and you can get to the um, Not A Diving podcast channel on there. And um, if you're not a Discord person, you can get me on Twitter or Instagram, at Official. And finally, yeah, follow the Spotify playlists, which consists of all the episodes and a bunch of the music that gets discussed on each of the episodes to go with it. So, um, yeah, that's a good way of following us too. Anyway, I will see you back here next week. And next week, we're not going to have a DJ. I've, um, there's been some big talk about uh, expanding our horizons, but next week is an expansion of those horizons. So, um, yeah, I will check you back here, same place, same time, for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.